As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones, what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? What will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. This is the word of the Lord. A little more than two years ago, in the summer of 2008, we first became aware of just how desperate our financial situation was in this country. Some were saying that our financial depression might be as great as that of the 1930s, certainly the worst in the last 80 years. In the elections two two years ago, there was a big sweep to the Democratic Party, Barack Obama was elected president and immediately named Rahm Emanuel to be head of staff. The first time Rahm Emanuel was interviewed about what he hoped to bring to Washington, he said, I think the most important thing is that we not waste this crisis. And a reporter with a follow-up question said, wait a second, what does that mean? And he said, a crisis enables us to do something that might not otherwise be possible. Mark says there was a crisis. Jesus and his disciples had arrived in Jerusalem. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're told of only one trip that Jesus and the disciples made to Jerusalem after Jesus began his ministry. These were country boys. From little bitty places up near the Sea of Galilee, 90 miles south in the capital city, and they were awestruck. This crisis must not be wasted. Let's see what we can see. Number one, Mark says that these country boys were really impressed with the size of the stones in the magnificent temple that Herod the Great had built. You remember that the first temple was destroyed in the 6th century by the Babylonians. Under Ezra and Nehemiah's leadership, both the walls were restored and the temple rebuilt, but not nearly enough money to make it what Solomon had made it 400 years before. Instead, they did the best they could, and for almost 600 years, it was a very modest place. And then Herod the Great had enough money to see to it that the temple was restored. The only stones we have that go back that 2,000 years is what used to be called the Wailing Wall. But after the Jews had access to it again, after the Six-Day War in 1967, it's simply called the Western Wall. But those huge stones Herod the Great had placed there 2,000 years ago. Wow, they said, look at these huge stones. And Jesus said, I tell you, they will all be tumbled down. And they were, of course. It would be about 42 years later that the Romans would first burn the temple and then tumble down the stones, and the Temple Mount would be desecrated for hundreds of years. The disciples in awe. Jesus said, don't be in awe of these man-made structures. They will all be tumbled down. They can all be done away, was the point. 
okay? Elizabeth Sherrill is one of my favorite devotional writers. I've been reading her for years. She's in her 80s now. Recently, Elizabeth Sherrill was writing on this very theme. What is it that makes people stand in awe? She said, I've been in New York so much of my life that I see very little I haven't seen before. Recently, she said, I thought I'd duck into a fast food place, have a salad for lunch. I went into the ladies' room to wash my hands before I ate, and a woman had let two little girls go in by themselves. They looked like they were five and three. I washed my hands with soap, pushed the button, held my hands under the dryer, and when it first came on, these two little girls sort of jumped back. I could tell they'd never seen one of these before. But when I got my hands nice and dry and started out, the bigger one had seen the button I pushed, and she hit the button, and it started pouring out warm air again. And as I left the room, she said, these little girls were standing there with it blowing through their hair and all over their faces. They were amazed at this hand dryer. Elizabeth said it reminded me of a time 60 years ago when I was a young writer in New York in my 20s. I had a dear friend who lived in South Florida. Sixty years ago, people didn't travel nearly as much as they do today. My friend had never been out of South Florida. And I kept encouraging her to come see me in New York. And finally, as the winter came on, I said to her, Look, catch a sleeper train out of Florida. Sleep all night. You'll wake up in Penn Square Station the next morning. I'll be standing there when you get off the train. She agreed to come. I was standing there. The train pulled in. She got out. We made our way up to street level. And suddenly my friend said, Liz, look. Every time she exhaled, it looked like smoke was coming out of her mouth. She had never seen that in South Florida. She was amazed. Elizabeth said, I was trying to say, look at the Empire State Building. Look at Rockefeller Center. And she was saying, look at my breath. The Bible says God created all humans, that for each one of us, God takes a big breath and puffs into us his own ruach, and we become living beings. And that same ruach, that same holy breath, spirit, wind, breath, all the same word, ruach in Hebrew, Numa in Greek, that spirit we were praying would speak to your deepest spirit that you're my son or you're my daughter. I'm so glad you've come home to me. So glad you've taken this next big step with me today. I'm really, really pleased with you. Number two, they moved from the temple to the Mount of Olives. It's just a short distance. In the old days, would come out the east gates of the wall portion of the city, go down about 100 yards to a beautiful little brook called the Kidron Ravine. Um, Bruggenvillea bloomed there. It's so, so pretty at this little Kidron Valley. And you cross the bridge, and immediately you're on the Mount of Olives, where the olive trees were, the place Jesus spent that Thursday night before he was arrested, you recall. So this is a little bit earlier in that last week, and... He and the disciples have moved from the Temple Mount just across the little Kidron to the Mount of Olives. Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John, the first four disciples that Jesus called to come and follow him who had followed him, now ask him, well, if those stones are all going to be tumbled down, does that mean the end is coming? And if so, what are the signs we should be looking for? 
But Jesus affirms life here on this planet. We are 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord, and the earth is still moving quite well. We are not to follow every little sign and wonder. We are to make an all-important decision. Who is it that we trust? Elizabeth Bernstein had an article in the Wall Street Journal the other day. She said, Americans have become a nation of maybe people. And in her article, she said, people who say maybe, maybe, maybe are weasels. They don't want to make a decision. She talked about a dinner party where she sent out invitations. She said in the old days, one would send a printed invitation. One would get a written response to the invitation. Yes, I'm coming. Sorry, I cannot come. But today we have telephones and we have all kinds of Facebook. Uh, We can send on Twitter an answer of one. So we just put it off and put it off. She had said 20 people responded, maybe, and 18 of them didn't show up. Mr. McKay, a famous executive in this country and salesman, says all salespeople believe the best answer you can get after you try to sell somebody something is yes, and the worst answer is no, but that's not correct. The worst answer is maybe, because it sends you back again and again and again. We've got people that have been visiting this church 10 years. We've been calling who haven't made a decision except to say, maybe, maybe. I'm so glad today when we ask you the questions, you didn't say maybe, you said yes. I do, I do, I will. That's what we're asked to do, to follow this one God who has chosen to reveal himself to us in Jesus of Nazareth, his Son, our Lord and Savior. Number three, but what about bad things? Bad things happening. Jesus said, yeah, they do. They really do. Earthquakes and famine, all kinds of things. This week, as I was working on the sermon, one afternoon I sat alone in my office and tried to remember all the things I could about my sixth grade year. I remember my homeroom teacher, Ms. Marie Wiggins. I liked her very much. I remember that I had other teachers as well, one of whom was teaching us how to read poetry and how to write poetry. When I was in the sixth grade, Joseph Stalin died. He was the head of the Soviet Union, our biggest enemy at the time. I wrote my poem about the death of Joseph Stalin, and now he's dead, and I'm so glad he's not here, I ended But I didn't know really how bad Joseph Stalin was. We've learned a lot more after his death. Alexander Solzhenitsyn and others have written about these labor camps that Stalin built all across Siberia. Siberia is huge, as you know. At one time, Stalin had built 8,000 labor camps. And more than 30 million Russians ended up serving time in those labor camps. 30 million people charge against them, they were uncooperative, which meant they disagreed with Joseph Stalin about something. So he threw them into labor camps. Not sufficient food, no medical care, freezing, freezing temperatures. Horrible. But guess what? Out of 8,000 of these camps called gulags, only one 
survives today, and it's a museum. Gail and I have been to eight concentration camps, three in Poland, five in Germany. The Nazis were terrible. What they did was horrible. But now all those camps are memorials, museums, beautifully preserved. People walk around speaking very softly, prayerfully, remembering. And seeing that these bad things came and went, came and went, came and went. And as our choir sings that Sunday closest to 4th of July, his truth is marching on. God's truth is marching on. It's good. It's right. It's beautiful. It's true. You can believe in the one in whom you've placed your trust. Number four. In some of the translations, this last verse of today's lection says the sufferings are just beginning. But in Greek, it isn't really suffering. It's birth pang. Birth pang. Having a baby is not as tough nowadays when you have a good anesthesiologist who can give you an epidural. It's not nearly as bad as it used to be. But the thing about birth pangs is that they're supposed to have a wonderful outcome. A baby. Another little girl, another little boy has come into the world. Another child of God. And that's the word Mark uses here. There are pains. There are hurtful things that happen. But those who are dedicated to the purposes of God move on by the grace of God. I'll tell you a quick story. A new book has just come out called Unbroken. It's a biography of a fellow named Louis Zemperini. It came out this week, Veterans Day week, because Louis Zemperini is a great veteran of our country, World War II. He was born to immigrant Italian parents out in California. And when he was a little boy, there were bullies who called him a dago and a wop. He'd come home crying. So his father taught him how to fight, and Louis became a brawler. Every time somebody would call him a wop or a dago, he'd pop them in the face. He was always in and out of little bits of trouble. And then he got to be in high school and discovered that girls really weren't impressed with this way he was living his life. They loved athletes. So he decided to try out for athletics and discovered he had a real talent for distance running. At 19, he represented the United States at the Olympics in Berlin. And then World War II came and he joined the Army Air Corps, became a bombardier. On a flight over the South Pacific, his plane went down in the ocean. Eight members of the 11-man crew died. Three got into a tiny rubber raft, no food, no provisions, began to drift, drift. Thirty-three days later, one of them died. The other two, Louis and the pilot, made it 47 days, and the rubber raft washed up in the Marshall Islands, controlled by the Japanese. They were thrown into concentration camp, prisoner war camp, prisoner war camps. Someone there recognized Louis Zamperini's name, and that word got out. Ah, oh, this guy ran in the Olympics. So the Japanese decided, hey, he would be a great one to do propaganda films. And the more they tried to get him to do it, and the more he refused, the more they beat him, denied him food, put him in solitary confinement. He endured two long, miserable years. When finally the war was over, he came home to Southern California. He woke up in the middle of the night, horrible nightmares, sweats, 
his wife said he would wake up screaming in the middle of the night, and when he woke up, he would drink and drink and drink alcohol. His life was going absolutely to the bottom. When one morning, 1949, his wife said to him, Louis, there's a young preacher who's come to California. They say he's really good. He's preaching at the football stadium tonight. Why don't you and I go? And they went to hear Billy Graham. And Louis said, I gave my heart to Christ. I gave my heart to Christ. And his wife said, you wouldn't have believed the difference. What a sweet spirit. A sweet-spirited man who spent the rest of his life doing everything he could to help other young people. He's 93 now. Still going strong. He didn't agree with General MacArthur who said, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. Louis said, no, no, you don't fade away. You keep making every day count as long as you live. And what was it that changed his life? Hearing the gospel preached and hearing a stadium full of people singing, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Amen.